This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you're tuned into the show that brings you closer to the people and places of our capital city. I like parks. It's a recent obsession of mine that has led me to be more observant of them as I visit various parks in the Klang Valley. I think parks are also pretty accessible for all and are generally egalitarian, but I recently came across an article that argues that might not necessarily be the case. The article in question is called The Park Divide. It's written by Lim Xiaoyun, researcher on arts and architectural history, and it's published in a magazine called Design Anthology. Don't worry, I'll include the link to the article in the podcast, but in the meantime, I speak to the writer to hear her thoughts on parks. She starts by summarizing what she wrote. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, the, I think the article is quite observational. So uh, my, my observation, I guess, was it really started out with when I went to Desa Park City and I observed the number of dogs there. And not just like any kind of dogs, but like the number of like fancy purebred dogs. Um, and, you know, in a country where dogs are not really seen in public space um, because, you know, of the kind of cultural connotations around it, um, I thought that was very fascinating and, you know, I think it was a big signifier of the kind of racial enclaves that these lakes have almost permitted, right? And, and how housing developments that are built around these lakes uh, reify and sort of uh, solidify public divides, uh, divides in, uh, in wealth, in race, in specific kind of enclaves. So, I mean, for me... It was this relationship between the lake and the park that I was very interested in, right? So how towns spring up around the relationship between the lake and the park and how the mall oftentimes is in a kind of like attached, uh, let's say, typology, right, to that to that equation. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I in the article, it was really talking about the history of Kuala Lumpur, but, you know, through this lens of the kind of lake, park, and then attached mall. Mm, yeah, and going back to um, specifically about the lake, um, your article says that urban enclaves are formed around a body of water, right? Lake. Um, is, is lake an important indicator to the growth of areas surrounding it? Yeah, um, I mean, I think it probably, to me at least, doesn't read as an indicator of growth, but rather it's a kind of strategy for development, right? So one thing, one place that I always refer to is the mines, which is literally called the mines. <laughs> I think everyone forgets <laughs> that the mines refers to mining. And it kind of, it, it's quite loving, you know, the way in which it's sort of like, oh, mines, how cute, how nice. Uh, it kind of neuters the noxiousness of its origins and the like, number of people who died there. Um, and it kind of gives it that gravity, right? The, the mines. So... Uh, I, for me, like especially the mines is very interesting because it kind of takes all of these ideas to the extreme, right? So you have the lake, obviously, um, the big lake that anchors the whole development. Um, but then you can canoe on this lake. And then not just that, but the water extends to the interior of a mall, you know, um, and kind of mimics Venice by way of the Venetian Hotel. Um, and you can basically ride in these kind of like Venetian canoes when you're in the mall. Um, and it really, it, it, I think the logic of lakes is almost taken to this, to this point of extreme, um, when it becomes not merely a kind of public space, but 
is so clearly privatized and seen as interior recreation space as well, uh, where one pays for the kind of like experience of, you know, looking up at a fake sky. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for bringing up uh, the mines because I don't know whether the mines is still as, I mean, in terms of just looking at it socially, I don't know whether it's still as cool these days, but <laughs> it is an important indicator of how, you know, KL was back then, right? If you think about it. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, that, that's a very good example of, of I guess, you know, if you, if you were to look back at KL's history, right? Um, but going back to Diesel Park City, um, what I find quite interesting about your observation there is that, um, do you feel like that area, the way it was built, the way it was designed, was it deliberate on the developer side to somehow make it that way to appeal to a certain crowd and also a certain demographic? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think one thing that's remarkable about Desert Park City is that there is so much space for walking, right? Um, they literally call it the Central Park. Um, but then again, you know, the Central Park is not just a recreation area. It is directly connected to Plaza Arcadia, um, which is a strip mall. And we don't really see strip malls in Malaysia. We often see indoor kind of very air-conditioned malls. Um, but, you know, that the transition between walking for exercise and to walking for buying things, right? Walking for capitalism, let's say, um, is very seamless, right? Your concrete pathways for walking dogs. And then suddenly you just are easily able to walk into Plaza Arcadia to, you know, go get your dinner or like go buy your kind of daily lives or like go to the arcade or whatever, you know? Um, so I think that was definitely a, very clear, deliberate choice with that. Um, and not just that, like it, it is quite clearly located in the middle of the entire housing area, right? So all the apartments are kind of quite easily dotted around it. And then the houses are very, you can very easily drive to the park or walk to the park from if you live in one of the houses nearby. Mm, yeah. And in your article, you also, I guess, um, make an example of how People can just, you know, from from walking for recreational, they can just then, you know, go to the mall to have dinner, right? Which I find quite interesting as well because I think um, I've been to a fair number of parks here in KL as well. Um, a lot of other parks are designed to be quite secluded and a bit away from civilization to a certain extent. Maybe not not too remote, but but they they seem to exist on their own space, if you know what I mean, right? And people tend to just sometimes use these parks uh, pure, purely for re recreational to exercise and whatnot or to bring their kids, right? And 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 it becomes a more of a social space, but a social space that's pretty much uh, exclusive in that sense, right? Um, only to serve its purpose in that way, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, so it's quite interesting to see a park that's designed to be a bit more inclusive to our lifestyle one way or another. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think also, I mean, in particular, Desa Park City was very much built around a kind of upper middle class to upper class and specifically Chinese resident. Um, I mean, the way, the kind of like way in which they, they kind of frame their marketing materials as well, you know, the way in which they choose to sell property. Um, it's, it's very targeted advertising, you know, as, as uh, development always is. Um, but the Sabak city in particular has been very, very popular among Chinese people. Um, and, you know, I think, one of the reasons why um, is that they allow dogs in their park um, and they encourage you to walk your dogs in the park, right? Uh, which is unacceptable to many people uh, who are Muslim, right? So, I mean, I mean, there's a very careful way, I think, in which, in which the, whole, the whole thing has been crafted. Um, and it's 
I mean, the more the more I think about Death of Hog City, the more I mean, Death of Hog City. I think for many, is really a vision of what it means to live a good life in Malaysia, like, at least for Chinese people. Um, it's you know very easy access to being able to like walk in the park, let's say with your parents or with your children and like with your pet. Um, and then from there, you can grab an easy dinner and then kind of like head home. There's very like upscale bakeries and coffee. Um, and the, yeah, and, and it really does speak to this version of like, especially now in KL, like what it means to live a, a good, enjoyable life, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let, let's, let's, I guess, tackle that cultural differences that you brought up, right? Um, yeah, it's a bit difficult to, to sort of like exploit because only because um, I can understand the sensitivity but at the same time I also recognize there is a need to also have parts that are more inclusive to other members of the community as well right but at the same time um, you know like you said you know um, having a part that allows dogs to be there means that you're also technically um, segmentizing the part right uh, one way or another I don't think it will lead to to like a big contestation or anything it's just that you know Maybe people who who are not you know that familiar or you know who who find dogs uh, a bit more sensitive um, wouldn't be there, right? Therefore, you're you're you know one way or another, yeah, indirectly sanitizing the park mm. to 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 be to be exclusive, right? Um, not not deliberately, but it's just that I, I feel like that that's how it, it'll become, right? Um, yeah. But but what I'm quite curious to know is that do you think that that's just you know, a, a question of social cultural clash, or is there also a class element to it? Um, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's a bit tricky to finesse it, right? You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that speaks to really the complicated dynamics of inclusion and exclusion, right? Um, I think what is very inclusive to one community will uh, inevitably, to a certain extent, alienate everyone else. You know, I think we see this with religious spaces as well, right? Like if in a church, right, it is very inclusive specifically to one community, but it is also definitionally exclusive uh, to everyone who does not uh, practice the faith. And same with mosques, same with temples, you know, same with, um, you know, other places of worship. So I think we can think of parks in the same way, uh, where they are definitely made for certain places. Uh, They are definitely made for certain people. And there are different kind of levels of inclusivity and exclusivity that I play. And, you know, I think what I find to be very interesting is that um, a lot of times public parks that are that are controlled, let's say, I mean, not controlled, um, that are managed and administered by the government um, also have kind of these rules at play for, for behavior, right? Um, but rather than like permissive saying like you can bring dogs, it's it's uh, not permissive. He says you cannot bring dogs. You you know cannot show public affection. You cannot you know uh, dress inappropriately. You cannot etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and these are all very clearly stated in the sort of big amarans that are there uh, when you go in. And what specifically I find to be to to be quite unique, especially to government managed public parks, is that they close very early. They close at like seven eight pm. Uh, usually I think it's eight pm. Um, which means that let's say you know you're an office worker, you are uh, coming home from work after the terrible rush hour, you probably won't have time to go to a park. Uh, you probably won't have access to these kind of spaces. It's mostly for, let's say, people who stay at home to work or um, folks who are more elderly. They uh, for sure, I think, are the ones who that I observe using parks the most, um, who are probably retired already or working part time at their age. 
So, I mean, I think there's always an element of leisure when it comes to parks, right? Like, even these people who are retired have the kind of luxury of being retired. Um, but it's a question of, I guess, what are the kind of fences that, that guard spaces, right? Uh, whether it's kind of very visible fences of, uh, of government-administered parks where literally, you know, it's bolted up at night. Or whether the rules are more invisible, right? Like you are allowed to bring dogs in and therefore excluding a kind of whole bunch of other people. I, 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 don't, I don't know about you, but I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. Um, yeah. Oh, in, in, in what way? You know, I, I do think that um, there are always going to be spaces that are, that are more made for certain people than others. You know, again, going back to the idea of religious space, right? It's, uh, the idea is not to admonish difference. The idea is not out to flatten out difference, um, but rather to make space for the kind of differences at play, right? So I think it's a good thing that we have different kinds of parks that cater to different kinds of people. Um, and yeah... That was Lim Xiaoyun, researcher on arts and architectural history, talking about her observation of parks here in the Kelang Valley. We're going for a short break. Stay tuned. I'm Hanif Baharudin and you're listening to I Love KL on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, listening to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. I'm Hanif Baharudin. Joining me on the show today via Zancaster is Lim Xiaoyun. She's a researcher on arts and architectural history and she recently wrote an article that talks about parks and our relationship with them. To continue the conversation, we look at how lakes are central to the design of a lot of parks here. What makes them appealing to be had at our parks? Yeah, I mean, I think they are really located in communities, right? And I think it's no surprise that we see this trend of development of lakes being centerpieces because the feature of the lake and the kind of rules of the park around the lake are also, you know, it is a statement by a developer of the kind of people that they want to attract, number one. Um, but number two, it's also a statement of the kind of values of the people who live around that. So it's both a kind of like reflection and a kind of like uh, private, I would say, marketing strategy. Um, so there's there's definitely a duality there, um, and it it really I think does change the tenor of of different places of residence, right? Mm. But how crucial are lakes in making parks more attractive to visitors? Because I've been to parks where there's a lake, but I actually wonder, you know, what's the point of having that lake because it feels very sterile to a certain extent. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean I'm I'm with you there. I think especially growing up, there was a very big kind of fear of lakes at least um, in at least in Chinese Chinese families right because uh, the mines were so dangerous um, that people would regularly get pulled in to lakes right so there was always this kind of fear of water right this fear of like entering a mining lake and I don't think that fear is misplaced either because you know many of this these waters were incredibly toxic. Um, and, you know, and obviously we're not sure how much processing and how much uh, cl- cleaning up of mining waters has happened between it being a mining pond and then being converted as a recreation space. I certainly hope there has been a lot of uh, <laughs> attempts to kind of get the toxicity out, but you never really know. 
Um, so, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you there that I don't think that the lake, at least in for many people, really plays that much of a functional role. Um, and it's become much more of an aesthetic kind of thing to gaze upon, right? Um, and I think this really goes back to very old ideas of what a park, a landscape garden should look like, like back to kind of romantic era gardens in England. Um, where some of the, I mean, if you think of Stourhead Garden, which is one of the kind of earliest gardens and sort of landscape projects to really like be, uh, to really define what an English garden should look like, right? You know, our colonial forebearers. Uh, the, the lake is at the centerpiece of that. Um, Stourhead is anchored by a big lake um, that is right in the middle. And there is a walking path that you are supposed to sort of walk around, um, circumvent this, circum, circumamble this lake. So the lake is always on your left side. And, and, and it's this idea of, I think, circling the lake that is so potent and has really translated down to the parks that we see today. Uh, I think also, I mean, the craziest example of this for me, at least, is Putrajaya, right? which was very, very explicitly, like they were saying that they needed to build it around a lake. And Putrajaya actually used to be a farm reserve, uh, sorry, a, a, a farming area, um, but was also reserve land, right? So it was all trees. There was no water there, <laughs> at least until the 1950s when I was looking at maps. There, were no, there was no water there. So there was a 60, 650 hectare man-made lake that was literally dug up in order for people to look upon it. Um, and there's no real function to this water beyond that. Um, you know, some architects have claimed that it helps with cooling and, you know, it might. I haven't really looked too much into the science of that. Um, but compare, comparing the kind of environmental cost of cooling versus the environmental cost of, you know, uprooting an entire forest, I think it's really, it's really difficult for me to make that justification. But I think... I, I really don't think it plays a functional role at all, especially in Putrajaya. You know, they literally have to spend more money to build bridges rather than having rather than just building normal roads, um, in order to to make the lake a kind of place where people drive through um, drive through Putrajaya. And yeah, sure, you can pay for you know a boat ride, you can pay for you know canoeing, etc. But no one swims, you know. It, no, no one swims in these lakes. Um, I think in part because of you know its history of being a mining pool, but also because it's not safe to do so. No one has really cleared it to swim, um, and no one I think really wants to swim alongside uh, canoes <laughs> and boats that are you know going up and down, up and down um, different lakes. So yeah, to me, to me, it really is an aesthetic choice more so than anything else. <laughs> yeah, it feels quite interesting. Um, maybe I'm taking it for granted as well because I'm not technically from here. So I grew up in an area where I have access to the sea quite literally. So I guess maybe to a certain extent, maybe it's, it's a thing about yeah, urban folks, you know, or part of like designing a city that, you know, maybe it's good to have access to water. Yeah, <laughs> you know, especially because it's central, in, right? So, yeah. yeah, I also had very easy access to water, you know, and all these, mm. when I would come to KL growing up, like that's what I would, yeah, I'd be like, oh, you know, like nice, water, great. <laughs> and people are like, no, 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 it's not the same as Penang, you know, like don't, don't try jumping in. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess probably for us, it's, it's yeah, maybe, 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 yeah, because KL is pretty much central, people feel the need mm. to maybe... Gave access to water to the urban folks, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, going back to parks again um, and how, um, to a certain extent, these, these, I guess, 
parks were designed to cater to that particular community. We also see sometimes, you know, as much as I said that, you know, parks are meant to be egalitarian and, and they're technically not. We do see people perhaps, I guess, venturing from um, neighboring areas to, to, to a private park, for example, right? Maybe, okay, the, the neighborhood surrounding um, this Park City, for example, you know, you might have, you know, people who are not from this Park City going to that area, right? Mm. Um, do you think that it can also sometimes create an urban tension, you know, considering the differences in, you know, maybe um, culture, in, in class? Um, because I have had friends who've told me stories of this nature as well, where they live in an area where it's um, a bit more quote, unquote, upscale, but, uh, and then they have people from neighboring area um, coming in to their parks and you know the community there started complaining because they're like oh, oh. okay you know, these people are bringing in a different kind of culture to, to their parks and whatnot so so do you mm. think that this will indirectly sometimes create an urban tension as well yeah i mean i think there's definitely i mean well i guess first of all i i would venture to say that there's no real real public park you know in kl um, all parks have a closing time, you know, or are owned by private by private actors, um, and I think that really curtails the kind of level of like ability for it to perform as a public space, right? Um, and even even the kind of government control parks, right, are publicly owned, right, in the kind of uh, strict definitional sense, um, but are also, you know, closed at a certain time and are inaccessible to many. So I think. Yeah, with the idea of public space, maybe parks are not the best way for us to kind of experience that, you know, or rather I feel like parks are not really the site of that. Um, and it's very hard to imagine that, you know, anyone would really allow a protest to happen, let's say, at a, at a park. So I think the level of publicness also is something that we need to think more critically about perhaps. Um, but, you know, to your second point about creating urban tension, yeah, I think for sure. And I think that happens with any kind of neighborhood, right? Um, whether it does happen in a park where people are encroaching you know, or are seen to be encroaching, or whether it's in a like a neighborhood where gentrification is happening, right? Um, I, I think there's really, really definitely like always class elements at play. And it's either it's usually the park or the mall that is seen as these kind of places where where like oh okay like you're not from here right like um you're you're like you're trespassing quote unquote in in our in our city our our area our housing estate and yeah i do i do think that parks are really just the i wouldn't say victims but you know the unfortunate um unfortunate sites um of kind of inevitable clashes um that always occur um but I, I think really it does come down to a question of generosity, right? Um, and how generous we are to our neighbors in a very broad sense. Um, yeah, uh, that that's my take on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I mean, having this conversation right after G15, where I guess to a certain extent we, we've seen mm. how, how, how polarized our society can be, right? And I, I think reflecting on it and thinking about, you know, the article that you wrote, I, I can't help but think about, you know, this will indirectly i guess divide us a bit more i suppose you know one one mm. way or another is there is there a way to close that gap you know especially 
especially at uh, you know maybe again it's an idealized view that I have you know <laughs> about parks but you know yeah maybe at, at a quote unquote public private space like like parks you know which are technically meant to be accessible you know if you think about it on a very surface level mm. um, right yeah yeah I mean I think I also share that same kind of utopian vision of parks and to a larger extent the power of cities to bring people together <laughs> um, and you know the idea of the compression and density of the city is that you inevitably have to come into contact with people who are different from you and who are, you know, coming from different walks of life and um, different kind of backgrounds. And I mean, for sure, the the sprawl of Kuala Lumpur and the rise of, you know, gated communities and the rise of very specific housing areas and, of course, the rise of uh, parks around lakes with very specific uses are barriers to that, right? Where you are basically living with people who are who look like you sound like you um, speak in the same language as you um, and you know I guess importantly for our conversation uh, engage in the same recreational activities that you do um, but yeah I mean I think I can't help but to also hope that there is something within the need for the city right to exist as a kind of uh, interdependent set of different areas um Maybe it's not a question of people having to travel within the city to come into a centre in order to kind of be with other people. Um, but that these these occurrences can then happen not just at the level of um, the kind of residential, but also at the level of workplace or um, the level of a kind of like community centre, right? Um, where there can be different, different modes of being public and, and different places and different spaces created um, where publics uh, can then come into contact with each other um, and hopefully, hopefully for a more inclusive nation. You've been tuning in to I Love KL and that was Lim Xiaoyun, researcher on arts and architectural history, sharing her thoughts on parks based on an article she wrote for Design Anthology. We'll be including the link to said article in our podcast. That's all we have for this episode of I Love KL. If you miss any part of the show, you can check out the podcast at bfm.my slash I Love KL, our app which you can find via Google Play and the App Store. You can also find our podcast on Spotify. Don't forget to also follow the station on Twitter at BFM Radio. My name is Sanif Baharudin and you have been tuning in to I Love KL bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. Stay safe and join us again next week only on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.